The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a show that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview a high-profile public figure. In each show, I also highlight an exceptional company, organization, charity, or even an individual that does great work in the community. After the headlines, I have an interview with Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva. Also, I'm sharing with you an interview with the makers of a new documentary, Disclosure, including actress and co-producer Laverne Cox and co-producer Sam Fetter. It was conducted by Eric Newman and Medaya Ocher from KPFK's LA Review of Books Radio. This is beyond the pale. It's a betrayal of the most sacred duty we bear as a nation to protect and equip our troops when we send them in the harm's way. Assuming the Times report is accurate, the U.S. intelligence, they report the U.S. intelligence community has has assessed that a Russian military intelligence unit, the same unit that was behind the assassination of the former KGB agent in London five years ago, has been offering bounties to extremist groups in Afghanistan to kill U.S. troops. There is no bottom to the depth of Vladimir Putin and the Kremlin's depravity, if that's true. It's truly shocking revelation that if the Times report is true, I emphasize again, is that President Trump, the commander-in-chief of American troops serving in a dangerous theater of war, has known about this for months, according to the Times, and done worse than nothing. Not only has he failed to sanction or impose any kind of consequences on Russia for this egregious violation of international law, Donald Trump has continued his embarrassing campaign of deference and debasing himself before Vladimir Putin. He had had this information, according to the Times, and yet he offered to host Putin in the United States and sought to invite Russia to rejoin the G7. He's in, his entire presence has been a gift to Putin. It was reported on Friday that a Russian military unit secretly offered to pay Taliban militants to kill American troops in Afghanistan and that Trump was briefed on the findings. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi said it was totally outrageous that President Trump did not respond to reports that Russian intelligence officers offered to pay Taliban militants to target American troops, calling the lack of U.S. response appalling. On Sunday, Trump denied that he had been briefed about the intelligence, as reported by the New York Times, and called it phony. President Donald Trump on Sunday tweeted approvingly of a video showing one of his supporters chanting white power, a racist slogan associated with white supremacists. Trump shared the tweet calling his supporters great people. New alarms are raised as California coronavirus hospitalizations jumped 32% in two weeks. As of Thursday, Governor Newsom said patients hospitalized because of COVID-19 jumped 32% in the last two weeks to 4,240, double the two-week increase of 16% that he had reported on Monday. Let's get blunt. Let's get blunt. 
for today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to get to the essence of movements by disfranchised, oppressed uh, minorities and what they're about. They're not about wanting special rights. They're not about being treated better or worse than anyone else. They're simply about one thing and one thing only, and that's the right to be average, period. Whether it's the women's movement, the LGBTQ movement, Black Lives Matter, or movements by all other oppressed, disfranchised minorities, at the end of it, it's just about one thing, and that's the right to be average. No better, but no worse. That's it. There's my bluntness for today. Congressman Raul Grijalva serves as the U.S. Representative for Arizona's 3rd Congressional District, serving since 2003. In 2018, Congressman Grijalva became chair of the House Natural Resources Committee. He also serves on the Committee on Education and Workforce and is the chairman of the Emeritus of the Congressional Progressive Caucus, as well as a long-standing member of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus. Congressman Grijalva, thank you so much. How are you? Thank you. I'm okay. I was so inspired by uh, reading some of your statements. Uh, I had to share it on my social media. <laughs> and thank you. I, I, I said, uh, I don't know if I'm going to get to interview the congressman, but it's very inspiring. So I want to start by just asking you, you know, so much is happening and happened and things... Yeah. Uh, move and change so quickly and you're definitely are more in the middle of it than anyone could be uh, what's your perspective on, on and your take on all that's happened and where we are today I, I, I think there's a couple of certainties despite the fact that, that, that one of the frustrations that we all share is that uh, we don't know what's next okay right. uh, we're, we're not you know, there is no how, where, and when answers. There's more questions than there are answers. Uh, when you talk about the pandemic and how we're going to go forward dealing with systemic racism and in particular the issue of law enforcement uh, before us now, how that those remain. And I think, but I think there's a couple of certainties that I've noticed and, you know, I've been around chipping at the rock world for a while. And one certainty is that you know what? As we recover and rebuild, that the status quo is not going to work. Putting everything back the way it was is not an answer. Right. Those are certainty. And I think that that the American people have told us that the generations that are going to inherit our society in terms of leadership and prominence and and, and all the and the political uh, power and and decision making that comes with that. They know that. And, and I think more and more people are coming to the realization that the pandemic showed a weakness. It showed a weakness in, in, in uh, our leadership. And it showed a weakness, more importantly, in, in, a, in, a, in, in, in this country's ability to respond. Okay? And here we are. You know, we're still not certain. Uh, my state of Arizona leads the world in terms of per capita 
great. Absolutely. I think the, the establishment who's benefited from the decades-long status quo is going to want things back the way it was. But those of us that are marginalized and those of us that are progressive uh, are going to push for a whole new system. And of course, you know, the last three and a half years have been especially uh, hard and taken us backwards in that quest. But this is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva. Before I get to anything specific, I wanted to ask you, how is Arizona doing? And are you, I mean, I think this is a redundant question because I can, I can anticipate yeah. the answer. Are you getting the kind of aid and the kind of support that you need from the federal de- department? No, I, I, I don't think what, what the state leadership that is trying to walk in two paths. Mm-hmm. Talk about health, the public health and the need to keep the spread uh, down, try, try to deal with testing. But at the same time, you have this, this drumbeat about open it up, open it up, open it up. And so Arizona opened it up. And now you're starting to ratchet back down again mm-hmm. because of the unbelievable spikes that occurred. And I... And I kept saying during that period of time, I would rather, I would rather err in the side of caution than go and make decisions that are going to have to retreat. And then the economic damage is going to be worse. And then you see it in also in who's getting the attention, right? Who's getting the testing, right? And and, and poor communities, communities of color, uh, marginalized communities, they're the last in line and the ones with the most. Most infection rate, most death, and, uh, and and in terms of unemployment, and who's getting hired back? Same scenario. So you see this systemic issue of this legacy, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that of, of, of how we have treated and why we still okay to leave some people behind, while while the, the rest go forward. I mean that 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 portal that this pandemic opened up 
and this portal that the murder of George Floyd opened up converged at the, at the same time. And I think, you know, there's kind of uh, a little bit of destiny and fate involved here as well uh, in that now you get to see the whole picture. And I think that Arizona, when you look at the whole picture, same situation, and, and uh, indigenous people are suffering the most in the state of Arizona, and it's because of poverty and the legacy. But we knew, many of us knew these pre-existing conditions were there. Lack of jobs, lack of good housing, lack of access to health care, the schools not as good as other places for our schools, and, and the list goes on. So those pre-existing conditions were already there. The pandemic just brought it to the, to, to the light of other people. And what happened with, uh, with the murder of uh, George Floyd is that it brought something that has been talked about with Black Lives Matter and other organizations about the profiling of brutality against black folk in this country by law enforcement, it brought that wide open. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's up to us, all of us, to make sure that these movements stay alive and stay vibrant, and especially in the next three, four months as we go toward November. You know, I'm sure Trump is going to do his culture wars. Uh, the statues have to stay, law and order, seal the border, keep them all out. Right. I mean, he's going to go back to that, you know, to the dog whistles and shouts about race and to the marginalizing of people and always uh, finding a reason to blame others for the, the lack of capacity for him to be the president of the United States of America. That's pretty obvious to everyone. And I, and, and, and I think that as we endure, but I think also when when there is a change, okay, and there will be, that the issues that we have been fighting about and pushing for, that the agenda, whether it's a Biden or anybody else, that that, with the Biden as president, that those issues don't get lost. Correct. Those issues don't become back burner issues, which has happened on immigration, which happened on, on, on LBG, LBGTQ issues that happen, we can name a bunch, okay? Yeah. They got pushed to the back, and here we are dealing with them in a crisis situation, right? And, and I think that that's all of us need to make uh, sure that, that Biden now, and when he's president, doesn't forget that. And, and, and in fact, the urgency of him becomes even stronger. Right. So I, I told people that the election of AOC, the election of Bowman the other day in New York, that's a harbinger of the politics of the future. You know? Yeah. That's what the way the politics are going to go. And and the sooner there's a connection made with communities where it, there's some authentic response to what they're feeling, the more great probability that the Democratic Party can survive. But if we become half-steppers and, oh, well, we can't do it now, let's wait a year, I, I think we'll we'll lose what I think is, is vital support going forward for the next uh, for the next decade plus, you know? Yeah, I agree. We, we all need to be very vigilant and aggressive in <clears throat> making sure that the, the most important issues are not squashed and we're not told to wait because there are more important ones. But who gets to decide that? I especially enjoyed your statement after Donald Trump's re recent visits to Arizona. You said, Arizonans have a front row seat to the failures of the Trump administration. 
I thought that was so poignant because... I know, and, 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 and attitudes have changed in Arizona. We have an opportunity to get a very strong, uh, you know, blue, blue hue to the state in terms of a Senate seat and uh, a couple of statewide seats, potentially taking over the House of Representatives at the state legislature, which would be a first since the late 80s or middle 80s. And what this means is that it's not just a demographic shift, it's an attitude shift. Correct. philosophical shift that's happening. And then, yeah, and the young people being more engaged now, uh, they become a power force in terms of how the, which direction politics go. And, and, and I think that that is all good for Arizona. We did front row the 1070, the worst piece of legislation that became a model for the state, mm-hmm. for the national government. And the center for, you know, the private prison industry, that's where it started and, uh, in terms of immigrants. The feelings of the border putting the kids in cages. We've had a front row seat to this, this division and this heart. Yeah. And, and for that reason, you know, him coming and bragging about the wall and doing all that doesn't carry anywhere near uh, the momentum that it did four, five, six, ten, fifteen years ago. You know? Yeah. And it must be, it must be hard when your state is going through you know, the pandemic is hardest hit, and yet Trump is worried about spending hundreds of millions on a wall. Um, it's, it's just so unconscionable. And, it, it, and the irony is that the workers there were, were infected. We don't know what the communities they lived in, what the consequence of that is. Communities didn't, you know, and, and you add the corruption to that. You add the fact that every one of these companies, they got huge contracts, half a billion, 300 million, all major donors to the Trump campaign. So right. now, Homeland Security has a no-bid process, so who the hell knows, you know, yeah. how they're doing this. Uh, and they're certainly not saving any money. And then he diverted funding from uh, housing and uh, other necessities for our men and women in uniform. He diverted that funding to build a wall. And you know why he shows off in Arizona? Because it's all public land and we, like, nobody can stop him. He didn't go to Texas where private landowners have them have, have tied them up in court for almost six years. Um, right. And the takings issue. So, you know, for me it was, uh, I used to get really disgusted and angry when Trump would come into the state and he's come too often. But now it, 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 there's almost uh, something pathetic about his presence, you know? Right. And I think most people are feeling that. Right. It's the president. It's the emperor without clothes constantly walking up and down the aisle. Yeah. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Arizona Congressman Raul Grijalva. Well, we've had, we have we had a little bit of a good news. The recent decision by the Supreme Court about DACA or the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that was a bit of a good news and kind of a... That was really good news because it was a, it was a reprieve with this thing hanging over him, right? Yeah. And, and I don't think Trump says, I'm going to rewrite it and write, write it right. Nothing like that will happen before November. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and the other thing is that also that becomes in a priority. We passed the bill in the House. We need to pass it again. The Senate needs to pass it. We have to have a president that signs it. So for once, you know, not only the close to 800,000 young people affected by it, that, that are DACA recipients, the ones behind them that haven't been able to register and haven't been able to come become part of the program, I 
think that 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 becomes one of those priority kinds of issues that has to get done and has to get signed into law so we quit torturing 800,000 people with yes it is no it isn't maybe for a year maybe not and maybe I'll take it away maybe I won't let's make it into law and then we can proceed uh, the way the Dream Act was intended to create a path to, le- to legalization and citizenship for the for, for, for uh, the individuals that, that are part of it you know Absolutely. You're right. Nothing is going to happen until November. He's definitely not going to correct uh, his actions. So we're not going to hold our breath on that. But it should be a motivator for us, you know, that, that uh, for Latino voters, and particularly younger folk, uh, for their friends and their allies that they know, you know, 27,000 teachers in our public schools are dreamers. Thirty plus thousand are first responders. I mean, we're talking about a population of people and the list goes on that are not only of us, okay, but are contributing mightily more so than other people to the struggles that are going on right now in terms of people's lives. You know, and I and a huge, huge number that were uh, essential workers across this country. Correct. So it, it, that's the contribution, and uh, I think you know when you got close to eighty percent of the American people, regardless of parties. Supporting uh, something permanent, I think that's the one that has to get done and get done immediately. I think that cracks the wall, pardon the pun, uh, for us to look at comprehensive immigration reform, which is what for the long term. Yeah, well said, absolutely. Congressman, do you have any update on the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act that was introduced? I, I, yeah, I think I, I really, the House is going to pass. I'm very confident that that's why I'm in D.C. right now to take that vote um, yeah. because it's, uh, I didn't want to do that one but proxy is historic I need to be here and and, and uh, as uh, the debates will go on today and then we'll move forward in some time hopefully 7 if not tomorrow early but 7 or 8 tonight uh, we'll take that vote it'll pass the House and it'll be a counterpoint to the, the half the Senate Republicans try to take on this issue and right. avoid it bigger issues you know yeah, hopefully. Yeah, I'm, I'm also confident the House will pass it. So I'm, I'm glad that that's happening today, later on in D.C. You know, people, people always tell me, like, well, you guys are passing good stuff. You know, we're going to pass an environmental justice bill. We're going to pass, we passed really good stuff. And not only from my committee, but from other committees. But it goes to the Senate and McConnell kills it. Right. So why are you wasting your time? This is why, because I think if we're talking about the politics of the future, and we should be setting a template. And we might not get it now, but we did pass it from the House. Mm-hmm. And if we keep this majority, we do it again. And this time there is a process by which we can move that out in, in, in front of a president that would sign some of this legislation. I say that because we have to provide the American people with a choice. You yeah. know, just because the Senate won't move it, and just because McConnell says no, does not, should not keep us as members of Congress from providing the American people with a choice. So they can see that there's two paths here, and that path is not, uh, is, is not the one they want. And I think uh, it makes it clearer and clearer that the Senate is an obstacle to any progress as opposed to uh, something else. And the House has got to continue to push robust, strong things because I think the Amer- that's what the American people are expecting right now. They're expecting us, you know, not do anything just because the Senate won't. They expect us to lay something on the table and by setting a template, setting a foundation for 
deliberation in the Congress, we can move that and move it rapidly. Yeah, and having said that, how confident are you? Do you think that it's possible for the Senate to turn blue? I do. Okay, great. You know, in, in Arizona, which is not hasn't had anything like this happen for a long, long time, it, Mark Kelly's to lose. You know, he's up 12, 13 mm-hmm. points on McSally. Yeah. The close races that people didn't expect to be close, whether it's Iowa, whether it's Georgia, whether it's the Carolinas, the weren't expected to be close. Mm-hmm. Colorado. Maine, okay. Kentucky. Maine. <laughs> you know, those are races that weren't supposed to be. And you don't see that all of a sudden those, those are in place and, and Democrats are leading in some of them or, or have the momentum going to the, their side. So, yeah, I think it is indeed not only a possibility, I don't want to say certainty because in any, in, in anything in politics, certainty is I mean, a word you can't use all the time. Right. But I, I feel very, very comfortable that I think the Senate... That's good news, especially coming from you. It's something to hope for. I want to let you go. I just want to... Thank you very much. I got really good talking to you. You as well, Congressman. I was, I was also just last thing, I was moved reading your statement about the Supreme Court decision of the civil rights law pertaining to employment of LGBTQ. Uh, and I was moved to read your statement overall and then you had a separate one supporting the trans community which sometimes is itself marginalized within the larger uh, lgbtq community so i just want to say thank you for your statement on this pride month that we're commemorating thank you very kind good luck to you congressman thank you so much for being very kind thank you you. bye-bye That was the very passionate, progressive, and outspoken Congressman Raul Grijalva from Arizona. Thank you, Congressman. The Blunt Post with Vic. I'm sharing with you an interview with the makers of a new documentary, Disclosure, including actress and co-producer Laverne Cox and co-producer Sam Fetter. It was conducted by Eric Newman and Medaya Ocher from KPFK's LA Review of Books Radio. Laverne Cox teamed up with Netflix on Disclosure, a powerful new documentary that examines how transgender people have been depicted on screen over the century. The Orange is the New Black Star serves as an executive producer along with Sam Fetter and speaks about her experiences in the documentary, which was released to coincide with Pride Month. Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by reader-supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm joined remotely today by LARB Managing Editor, Medea Ocher. Hi, Medea. Hi, Eric. So today we have a conversation with actress Laverne Cox and director Sam Fader about their new documentary, Disclosure, in which transgender creatives and thinkers explore how the lives and voices of the transgender community are represented in film and television, both from the past and in the present. So the documentary is fantastic. Everyone should watch it. And just like two personal things, it's like they revisit a lot of these movies from the 90s that I grew up with as a child that I just loved in terms of, you know, they were kind of my first like gay movies um, Mm -hmm. or ones that spoke to a kind of gay or queer aesthetic, but they really center how harmful many of the narratives about trans people were in those movies. So it was like this very interesting kind of return to older 
things and then suddenly recognizing how my experience in between that time had totally changed the way that I saw that. And I, I just thought they did a really great job also of showing how representation at once like really matters. It can help change things, but it also can mean like more risk or this kind of always this risk of backlash when you get more representation, which I just loved. Yeah. And I thought that the documentary was very good at pointing out representational patterns in movies and in TV, yes. which I think when they're all taken separately or you you just think of one movie or one TV show, doesn't occur to you that this is necessarily a recurring pattern, right? And that trans people are represented in a particular way over and over and over again. And this movie really makes that clear. I mean, there's a lot of archival footage. There's a lot yeah. of discussion about as you said, old shows, old movies, things that I had, I, you know, would never have occurred to me, but it's because I never put them together in that way. So it's also really like a powerful testament to the kind of patterns we've all been living with. Yes. Not talking about. And here's a, a, a movie that really makes that clear, which I thought was really powerful. I also did a double feature last night. I, I watched the movie and I watched Paris is Burning. Um, oh, wait, had you never seen Paris is Burning before? I've never seen it. I'd never How seen is it. this possible? We have known each other for, I'm not going to say how many years on the radio, but like we've known each other for this long. It's like one of my favorite movies of all time. And I've caught it like a million times. I but... don't know. I don't know. It's, you know what kept happening? I feel like I kept trying to watch it. And then whoever I was with would be like, I've already seen it. <laughs> and then so I was always, always kind of like quietly just meant to watch it on my own, which is exactly what I did last night. Um, I don't know why it took me this long. But yeah, it's, it was fantastic. And it was a great kind of double, double viewing experience to really see a classic along with this other new film, recognize the faults of the classic and see its great points. Yeah. Uh, and then also just think about, you know, it within a broader history. All right. Well, let's, um, without further ado, let's get to our conversation with Laverne and Sam. Let's do it. We're honored to have Laverne Cox and Sam Fader with us remotely. Many of you will know Laverne Cox for her performance as Sophia Bursette on Orange is the New Black, as well as for her public advocacy for transgender rights and special features, such as Laverne Cox, The T Word, which won a Daytime Emmy Award in 2015. She has also received three Emmy nominations as an actress, though I expect she will receive many, many more. Sam Fader is a filmmaker whose work explores the power dynamics and politics of the media industry's representation of the trans community and its struggles. Sam's 2014 film, Kate Bornstein is a Queer and Pleasant Danger, a study of the famed self-described gender outlaw, was named one of the Advocate's Best LGBT Documentaries. They both join us today to talk about Disclosure, a new documentary on Netflix that explores how transgender people have been portrayed in media from the past to the present, with a critical focus on both the costs of harmful representation, as well as the opportunities and challenges the community has faced as trans narratives, and experiences move into mainstream media representation. Thanks so much for joining us, Laverne and Sam, and congratulations on the movie. Thank you so much. It's Thank you so much. To just start, there's an interesting moment and it kind of frames the whole documentary is we tend to think, and this comes from 
decades of LGBTQ activism, but this is also part of civil rights activism, that representation matters, right? And that more representation is a better thing. But one of the things that I think your documentary really puts pressure on or draws into the light for many people is that it's like representation also means risk. So you talk, for example, about how transgender people, as they get more representation in mainstream media, can also face heightened public scrutiny and potentially violence. So can you just kind of talk about that matrix, I guess, of representation as both boon and potential challenge? I love that question because it really was what started this project. You know, as soon as there was an increase in visibility in the mainstream in 2014, I immediately had this sort of gave me such pause. And I, as a filmmaker, as an activist, as a trans person, I became really concerned because even though I am a filmmaker and I deeply believe in visibility, I also understand that is not the goal. And I really wanted to bring that conversation into the public as there was this celebration around visibility. It felt really important to understand that not only is there a deep paradox when it comes to visibility, but it is a means to an end. And the other thing that I felt that was really important to bring into the conversation is that we've always been here, right? Not only have we always been part of every fabric of every society, but we've also always been in film and TV. So those were really the two things that were very alarming to me that I felt were missing from the public conversation at the time. And it really seemed like there was a story being told that had a lot of gaps in it. And I wanted to tell that story more fully. Great. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to an interview with Laverne Cox and Sam Fetter, makers of a new documentary, Disclosure. The interview is conducted by Eric Newman and Medaya Ocher from KPFK's LA Review of Books Radio. You know, Laverne, can you talk a little bit about your experience kind of as, yeah, I want to be careful with the history here, but it's like when you played, you know, Sophia Bursette, that was a trans narrative in a big, big budget Netflix production, right? Everybody was watching. It was huge. Can you talk a little bit about the beginnings of that experience to kind of where we are now, like how you've seen this kind of movement or, and I don't want to push the narrative because maybe also the story is there hasn't been much movement in terms of trans representation, just from your personal experience. I didn't realize it was big when we were doing it. We were just so happy to be working back in 2012 when we started shooting season one and then it kind of got big. Although the budgets were obviously, you know, we're not bad. Um, <laughs> uh, production budgets, I should say. Yeah, um, yeah let's be clear. <laughs> I'm sure the other budgets didn't come until a little bit later, but sure. Yeah. So, uh, for some people. So, <laughs> oh, the tea is spilling. Oh, my goodness. Um, with nothing but love. So when Orange is New Black came out in 2013, there were no transgender actors on television with recurring roles. And last week I checked, according to GLAAD, there were about 26 transgender recurring roles on television as of 2020. So I would say that's a difference. And I would say that that's improvement from nothing to anything is an improvement, certainly. So 
You know, I think piggybacking off of what Sam said about increased sort of threat with, that comes with increased visibility. I just remember when I was on the cover of Time magazine in 2014, I remember, I think, saying in that article or saying at the time that for that month, the month of June, four transgender women were murdered that month. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. That I'm delivering costs on the cover of Time magazine and trans women are still being murdered. Right. And that has not unfortunately stopped. It's actually apparently increased according to all yeah. the data we have. So there's that. But we have seen the increased presence of trans folks on television, not film as much, definitely on YouTube, right? We have influencers who are trans, like the landscape has really changed. And the media landscape around like openly trans folks who are acting on television and on YouTube, etc. But there's also been an increased legislative attack as well. We've seen on a federal level, unprecedented attacks on trans folks and rescinding of rights, particularly with this current administration. And also on the state level, there's been a proliferation. I think since 2016, there have probably been about 500 pieces of legislation introduced in state legislatures all over the country, targeting trans folks anywhere from bathroom use to adoption to trans kids playing on sports teams, et cetera, et cetera. So there've been all of these sort of legislative attacks on trans folks as well in the past four years, I would say. One of the things, this is for both of you, Sam and Laverne, but one of the things that I thought was really interesting about the film is that it also tracks how you watched us as children and as young adults and what you saw when you were growing up. And I was wondering, could you share some of the things that really, I mean, you do this in the documentary that really formulated your understanding of gender or also of entertainment, because this documentary is so much about what entertainment is and what's funny and what's not funny and how all those things are interconnected. You know, honestly, the things that when I look back now and mm-hmm. sort of categorize into this conversation, there are all things that made me disidentify with transness. Mm-hmm. You know, there were all things that I internalized and understood to be, you know, jokes and mentally ill and killers and victims, you know, everything I saw that could have possibly had some sort of shape or mirroring of something happening with my gender, I did not want to associate with them at all. And so I really didn't understand my gender experience until I met trans people in real life. Mm-hmm. And when was that? Oh God, my late 20s. It's a long time to, yeah. to, to feel alone like that. You know, it's confusing time. You know, and you try on different things and eventually something fits. And I think that's a pretty human experience. I think, you know, what's uniquely different for trans people is that there's so little language and there's so little mm-hmm. room within that particular experience to try different things on. And mostly what's offered to you is seen as abhorrent. And mostly what's offered to you actually disavows what your experience is. In a similar way, one of the things I really appreciated about the documentary, even though it, I have to say it like threw me back in my seat a little bit. So you talk about this kind of history of trans representation in film, and there's very interesting, and this is one of many reasons everyone should watch this documentary right now, because you also talk about the imbrication of kind of anti-trans, anti-Black kind of representation, right, in historical film. But also more recently, it's like I was a kid in the 90s, grew up, I loved Soap Dish, and I loved just one of the guys, right? And for me, those films were about gayness, like in a way that I didn't have a way to talk about. But as I'm watching them from the present, when you show these clips, 
I'm realizing how horribly transphobic those shows were. There's a version of this also for something like The Birdcage that while I love that movie in the past and still like it, it's like I can see the problems of that representation. And I'm wondering if you think like our ability to kind of recognize that problem in the ways that the documentary is addressing, is that about the gains that activism has made for us? Or like, are we still very much at risk of making those same representational mistakes? Well, let's hope we're not. I think when we know better, we do better. And I still think right now there's a lot of conversation about Gone with the Wind and should it be pulled from television because of, you know, how racist it is. And I I don't think it should be, personally. I think we can hopefully, you know, instill people to be able to think critically about film and encourage kids to do the same thing. But I think that when we know better, we do better. So hopefully we have an understanding now of what we didn't have an understanding of back in the 90s, right? Or even in the 2000s. And so now we'll make different choices, but we have to have the information. And so I think that is what disclosure does. So many of these conversations have been had in the trans community for years about some of this work, but I've never seen it handled cinematically. I've never seen different trans folks have different experiences of the same film. I think one of the beautiful things about our film is that someone can have a, one of the contributors, I think Michael had a beautiful experience watching Boys Don't Cry. And then Brian Michael Smith had a very different kind of experience. And so that both those things can be true at the same time. Right. And so it's not about discarding things. It's about engaging critically. You know, Sam, to kind of take a similar tack, I'm wondering if both what you want people to take away from this documentary, but also what specifically Hollywood needs to take away from it, or kind of the media industry. And at least part of that is giving us a wider band, or it seems like it would be giving us a wider band of trans experience. So as you guys go over, not like focusing on the question of genitalia, right? This kind of straight cisgender anxiety that usually frames those narratives, but also moving out of, on the one hand, wanting to capture like the risk and the danger that many, many trans people face, but also not allowing that to be the dominant narrative. Like, is there a way that we can also just celebrate joy and things like that? I'm just throwing too much probably out there, but that's kind of where I'm thinking about like what you want people to take from this. You know, there's the one thing that every image pointed back to when I was doing my research, you know, no matter what it was, whether it was a joke or whether it was something abhorrent, they all point back to saying that trans people aren't real. Mm. So that's the first thing I would love everyone to question, whether they're in the industry or not, right? Are they creating characters that aren't real and are they using that as a narrative device? And as you're watching, you know, why are you reacting to a joke? Are you reacting to a narrative device because it disavows what trans people say? And, you know, what does that do to your understanding of trans people? So that's a big takeaway. You know, there's so many messages baked into the narrative and it's held within this very familiar, these familiar clips and intimate reflections and stories, you know, and Yes, it's a history of trans representation, but it's also about accountability. It's about historical erasure. It's about racism and misogyny and trans misogyny and the utility of visibility within social justice movements, right? As we said earlier, it's about the paradox of increased visibility. It's so deeply about spectatorship, you know, and of course, our unique production model, which deeply influenced the narrative, you know, so there's 
so many access points. There's so many layers that I hope people can connect to. And then I've been making documentaries since 2003, and I've mostly been, you know, within indie doc worlds, queer indie doc worlds. And so often what we see in all types of media that focus on trans people, and particularly when the approach is, you know, quote unquote, sympathetic or empathetic, it's Mm -hmm. these sort of sad, tragic trans stories that the trans person is alone, is in isolation. And I really question the utility of that. Yes, those are some people's stories and we need to see it. But when it's the only story we see, I'm not sure that this pity is really the access to freedom. Like, I'm Mm. not sure that pity is the access to change. I think it does other things to the spectator than what trans people actually need. It was so important to me in this film to hold a multiplicity of experiences and a multiplicity of voices. There's not just one experience. There's not just one narrative. There's not just one type of trans person. And because that's what I've seen so much in the name of transness, even in well-meaning productions, it was so deeply necessary from the beginning of this film that it held many, many voices with many different experiences. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I'm your host, Vic Jaramie, and you are listening to an interview with Laverne Cox and Sam Fetter, makers of a new documentary, Disclosure. The interview is conducted by Eric Newman and Medaya Ocher from KPFK's LA Review of Books Radio. So, Laverne, I wanted to ask you about um, this question of visibility, because you have, and, and it comes up so much in the documentary, of insisting on existence and visibility. And one of the things that I was thinking about is you've become a huge star. And what happens with stars is that they become visible. <laughs> and, and I was wondering how you were thinking about yourself and your own, your power maybe as a star, and also about this question of visibility and just the relationship between those two. I, I don't think of myself as a star. <laughs> I don't like wake up. I'm a, I'm a star. I, I I just don't. I'm sorry. Maybe you should start. Um, like I definitely. I mean, to be real, like I def the, the little kid in me, like definitely like wanted to be a star, right? Like the little kid who grew up in Alabama, like she wanted to be a star, you know. And I think the reality of what my life is now is that it is just it's a lot of hard work. And now it's in quarantine and I don't know, I just, I feel like I'm the same person. I think the world has sort of changed around me and I do feel like I've stepped more into myself. And I think the way I've stepped into my power is, oh, I just feel, I feel emboldened and I feel like a sense of possibility that I maybe didn't feel before mm-hmm. all of this, um, before my life changed. And so visibility, I don't know. It's like, I, you know, just promoting this movie, I'm like, okay, as an executive producer, I can use like this visibility thing. If I am indeed a star, we can use that to bring attention to this story. And so I think it's always about, you know, is, what, what's the bigger thing? Like, I think just being visible, just to be visible, 
seems silly. I do enjoy, you know, I think like most actors have a little bit of like, we were a little, I'm a little attention starved. <laughs> you know, I've always <laughs> obviously enjoyed a little bit of like, you know, there's a little look at me that you have to have, I think, to, to do what I do. But then like, there's a bigger, hopefully, reason that... I want people to look at me. Hopefully there's something that I, that I have to say or something that I, I want to, or something someone else has to say that I want to elevate or amplify. So I think like in terms of the visibility of having a platform, I think part of my job is to amplify messages like the one that's in disclosure, amplify messages of, of folks who maybe don't have the platform that I do, but um, who are saying and doing amazing things. So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I don't know if that answers your question. It does. No, it, it really does. Um, is there a time when you started to think about your work as an actress? Because it, you know, as you just said, you're doing a lot of work. Your work as an actress as indelibly tied to your work as an advocate. Was there a time when you were like, you know what? I need to figure out some way to separate these two or um, a way to give myself rest or was it was it always the two were always bound together? It goes back and forth. I mean, I remember distinctly or circa 2015 wanting to sort of go when it was time to promote the new season of Orange is New Black. And I remember I went on, I was doing the press tour, you know, and I was like, I just want to I just want to be an actress. I just want to go and be an actress and promote my show and not have to have it be attached to some sort of bigger cause. Because there's a lot of pressure there too when there's a bigger cause, right? And it was really interesting how I remember a specific moment. I don't know if I want to bring up the moment, but I remember a specific moment when I like went on a show and I wanted to just be an actress and not be political and made that choice. And then I ended up being sort of dragged into something political, like not, (laughs) not wanting to. And I was like, Oh my God, the second I say, I just want to, you know, go on and be an actress. Like all of a sudden I'm sort of dragged into something I didn't intend. So I, I don't know. It is, I'm a political person. I think for me, it's about just being, allowing myself to be where I'm at. I think like six mm-hmm. years ago, I, would, I wouldn't have been dancing. I wouldn't have felt comfortable dancing around in my glam room in a bikini on Instagram. And now I do. And, but yeah. it, and that doesn't, and I don't feel like that undermines my ability to have a complicated conversation about intersectional feminism or the history of trans representation on screen, that I can be multifaceted and I can be multidimensional. And my work too, in terms of just my own self-care is about like trying to be joyous with the responsibility that I've been given to and representation of, of a community um, and tr- trying to do that with more joy and with less, less of the weight weightiness of, um, cause it's a big responsibility that um, I've done, you know, imperfectly often. So yeah, trying to, you know, not put too much pressure on myself to be perfect because that's, Never going to happen. <laughs> that is a great message for literally anyone, I think, like, especially for like people that are, you know, in entertainment or that are creative. Um, I Just as we wrap up, just a kind of last question uh, for both uh, Sam and Laverne, you know, obviously, when we put things like this out into the world, there is an investment in futurity, right? We're, we're putting things out because we want to mark where we've been and, and hopefully to kind of move towards something that's better, right? That's everything from art to activism is invested in that kind of thing. So one thing I'd love to hear from both of you is how you see, and I'm sure that you're connected with these people through social media and a bunch of other things and your kind of fan accounts, younger trans people, like the kind of younger trans generation, like 
do you see something different in their experience than what your experience was growing up? And what kind of future do you want for this youngest generation of trans folks? Mm. Oh my God. Well, it's undeniable that their reality is completely different from the realities that Sam and I grew up with um, when we were younger. I mean, they have YouTube now. They have so many resources around um, just just transitioning. And then the, and because the internet gives you also the possibility of connection, it's beautiful. It's really, it's really beautiful. But then there's some people who were like, well, there's not that. And there's not, and we know we couldn't be comprehensive. You know, we had the movie was already, yeah. <laughs> there was one cut that was three and a half hours long. I think the first cut that I, I saw it was three and a half hours. I'm like, <laughs> um, so we couldn't include everything, but then what an opportunity it is for the next person to do the next thing. And so I am so excited about about young people and where they are now and what they're going to do with um, everything that we've laid out for them. <laughs> yeah, you know, when you, yeah, when you ask that question, I can't help but think about, you know, my access to young people is through social media mostly. And, you know, social media is, I think, by far one of the main reasons trans people were able to build up such a voice, you know, in the last 10 years. You know, we know there were trans people before us that lived fulfilling lives and had robust careers. Um, it just, it was very hard to find evidence of that, to find the documentation. And now it's, you know, we're slowly building that archive of, of trans lives that came before us. You know, so, you know, and I also just think about, you know, there was no way for other generations to see us as children in the way that we see children now. Like, I, I can't help but not think of all these layers to what my experience is of younger people now. You know, I'm sure there's so many who have who are having similar experiences to Laverne and I, and then there are others who are able to explore and have more joy and more support that we see more publicly. So it's, it's, it's a, such a complicated question to understand the change in generations because there's so many factors at work. All right. Thank you. We're going to have to wrap it there. I could literally talk to you guys forever. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Sam Fader and Laverne Cox about their new movie now streaming on Netflix, Disclosure. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Have a lovely day. Thank you. That was Eric Newman and Medaya Ocher from KPFK's LA Review of Books Radio as they interviewed Laverne Cox and Sam Fetter about their new documentary, Disclosure. Thank you, Eric and Medaya. The organization that I'm going to feature today is called Black Male Voter Project, and I'll read you their mission statement. It says, Since the inception of the United States, black men have been the recipients of inequitable treatment as it pertains to the ability to vote. And since the enactment of the 15th Amendment in 1870, the powers in this country have been exacting strategies to prevent the full enfranchisement of black men. These practices continue today in many forms, like voter ID laws, felony disenfranchisement, and misinformation campaigns, just to name a few. Our goal at Black Male Voter Project is to increase the number of black men who participate in electoral policies. The United States of America has failed black men in nearly every aspect of social life 
and access to the ballot is no exception. If you'd like to learn more about this organization and help, perhaps donate, you can go to their website, which is blackmailvoterproject.org. Today, I have two quotes for you about corruption. The first one is from John Steinbeck, which says, Power does not corrupt. Fear corrupts. Perhaps the fear of loss of power. The second one is from G. Edward Griffin, and it says, To oppose corruption in government is the highest obligation of patriotism. Before we go, I want to thank my extremely talented producer, Ricky Herrera. And uh, of course, thank you for joining me for another episode of The Blunt Post with Vic. Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Vic Jarami. Uh, both Instagram and Twitter, my handle is at Vic Jarami. That's V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.